everyone. Welcome to the Thriving Minds podcast. I'm Professor Selena Bartlett and today I am joined by Cheryl Batchelor, founder and CEO of Yili Yapenya Indigenous Corporation. She has kindly given us her time to teach us all about the work that she's been doing over decades, where she has learnt how to engage young people using neuroplasticity. She is going to share with us all the things that she's learnt over a long period of time, all with the vision of helping others learn the same tools and techniques. Thank you, Cheryl, for joining us today. So when I went into detention the other day, I met these two young people. Um, when um, one of them walked in and he grabbed a seat and I just said, oh, look, my name is Cheryl Batchelor. I'm a teacher. And one of the things I do is I teach kids about their brains. And I help you to, um, if you want to, um, make your brain smarter and faster so that you can stop yourself if you want to stop yourself from doing some silly billy things or if you want to just have a, a bit of a chat to yourself about um, you know, how good you are or what you'd like to do differently. So, so can I ask you, Cheryl, what's, what's, what do you, how, how do they react to that? Like what's the different sorts of things that you've seen? Well, most of the time they stare at me <laughs> when they first see me like that and just go, and they're confused. And I say, look, I'm a teacher, but I don't teach numeracy and literacy. I teach you about your brain and how to make your brain smarter and faster. That's what you'd like to do. So the whole thing is about inviting them to think about if they'd like to change um, the way that they run their life. So in your experience, because you've done this for so long, why is it that you have, is it, is it the tone of your voice? Is it your body posture too? Like, are you using? Are you in a position where they feel like you're you're not trying to threaten them or make them do something they don't want to do? Like, is there something you you may not be aware of, but you're obviously making them feel safe to engage with you somehow in this conversation where they won't with anyone else? Yeah, I think it's just about that. Um, I'm talking differently. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not talking about their behaviour. I'm not mentioned you did this and why did you do this and anything like that. I'm just coming in and talking about uh, I'm inviting them to think about um, their brain. And, like, I, I come in and sort of, like, say, you know, my brain sometimes tells me that I want another, you know, Tim Tam. Well, I really need, need to make an effort not to and stop myself from doing that. Do you find yourself in situations sometimes where your brain automatically makes you do something can you, and you feel a bit yucky about it later. The thing so, with you mm-hmm. too is your voice is quite calming. Is that something you've always had or is it something that you've learnt to do over time? Um, it's, it's calming because I've had to go like this. Being a high school teacher, I've had to go up because <laughs> I'm yelling to 30 kids. But you need to come down because, you know, you're in that animal kingdom when you first meet one of these kids and they're very like, I've never met you before, who are you? So I'm on hyper alert. So the first thing is you need to get down. So, and it's very important about where you sit. Like if the child is opposite me, so we can eye each other off, that can become a little bit threatening. 
So I tend to sort of like sit myself on the side and like this, sort of like turn on the side and like you'll look at me and then I'll look over like this. So, and the reason why I do that is because um, it's just a bit non-threatening. If I looked at you straight on, my whole body is, it's like my whole posture is pointed directly at you. So another thing is to sit on the side. So you have a child here and, and you here in a sort of like a rectangular thing and, and that's non-threatening. But when you've got each other on the side and side like this, it's it's actually like a um, authority. Yeah. Like it's going like this. There's really no, you can't see your whole body and there's not much, you know, attachment I think is going on there. And also have you, have you seen that... Um... Yeah, you know how parents do this sometimes they don't mean to but when they're driving with their kids the kids will open up to them more when they're side by side in the car as an example is that exactly kind of yes and it is more important to actually do something together so I get more stuff out of kids when I'm doing lego together when I'm doing puzzles together when I'm tracing or doing anything like that or better still kicking a ball outside um, or playing um, handball or something like that, especially with boys, because when they do that, there's a sense of safety and they'll tell you more. Yeah. So you need to do, I call it using your motor skills. You've right. got to use either the hand motor skills or the major motor skills to actually engage the sense of safety too, because what that is, and, and tell me if I'm wrong, Selena, it's about the nervous system. It's about finding rhythm in the nervous system to be able to be calm and regulate the heart. And, and sometimes I sit there and go like this and, and they just go, what are you doing? I, said, oh, I just say, oh, look, I'm feeling a little bit anxious. I'm just trying to get my heart to go the same rate. They always look at me as if I'm wacko, but I just, I just do different things. How did you come and, to understand or learn this? Was it through lots of practice or is it just intuitive to you? Lots of practice and lots of actually, I probably learned more about the, um, the interoception part, which is your inner body's nervous system being able to um, regulate itself. And you know, you know what I'm talking about, the, the brain and the body, you know, connection. That, that talking comes from a lot up here and in the side here, but the emotional regulation is in that middle and that needs to be a rhythm way of connecting and that comes with our voice too. So my voice can be monotone, it can be rhythm, it can be up, it can be down. I try and do it in a way that I'm opposite to the kid so the kid can try and understand. Um, so I can, you know, if they're talking high up here, I talk really, really low and try and get them to match me. So if they're talking low because they might be frozen, you know, the opposite of being aggressive or what do you do in that case when they're kind of shut down, I guess, is another way of looking at that. I try and go a little bit high. And the way I try and do it is um, crack a joke or, um, or or I do a rhythm thing with my fingers on here or something to try and snap them out of their freeze. So. Um, yeah, that's really great. So this is ways for you to initially engage. And sometimes would you say, how long does it take for engagement to take place? How long could it take? For, is it different between individuals? Yeah, it's about how quickly I can get that connection. 
And sometimes I can get out like within five minutes. So other times people, the kids are just going, you know, swearing at me going, who the fuck are you, get, you know, get out of here, you know, type thing. And when they start saying that, that's when I respond straight away and say, that's what I'm talking about. It's like that brain's just telling you a load of shit, mate. This must be really hard because I said, that's what I'm talking about. And when they get that, they go, I confuse them even more. And then they want to know a little bit more about it. And then you can just hear them listening and trying to click over in their brain what this all means. And uh, the next kind of thing I was wondering about is the trust in the relationship of the adults around them because I know that in the situations that we're referring to here, there's the main adults or contact points around them tend to be not always there. They're in and out. So how long does it take to build is it, how many people does it take to help them feel safe, I guess? Oh, look, I think, I think um, it doesn't take long if, if you've got the right skill set. And I'm really, really conscious of picking up every little body movement, every little sign. I'm constantly watching the whole face. Um, and, you know, with that brain health screen, looking at emotional bias, we know that most people in this profession, their emotional bias is really down low. Mine is really high because I can really tune into the faces and the body language and shift my body or shift my tone to respond to that. And are you using mirror neurons? Do they then absolutely kind of, they kind of copy you too? When absolutely. You yeah, yeah. They're copying the lowness of my voice. They're, they're copying my, you know, the downward motion of my body. Um, um, you know, if I was... Um, like I've seen some adults where the kids are sitting down, their doctor standing up and their doctor telling the kids what to do. Well, that's going, that's not safe. That's not safe at all. So I think it'd be great actually here to share some of the things that you've seen uh, mm -hmm. that, you know, you, you can look at and say, well, that's not going to work. Um, so because of the animal kingdom, that like the dominant versus the submissive body postures, like, can we talk yeah. a little bit about that? Because I feel like that's a big element plus your voice and other things that you use. It's not about being in the dominant position, is it, in this in these situations? It's quite the reverse. It is. We need to down-regulate ourselves really quickly. We need to be consciously aware of what we're saying, how we're saying it, our tone of voice and our position. Just like I was saying that, you know, from um, my body's facing that way but I'm turning this way is less threatening than just straight this way. And, and sitting in the chair rather than standing up and um, um, and just looking like you'll see some kids' legs go. You know, that's an indicator of their anxiety. So that means that they're not feeling safe, so I need to back off. And sometimes I just sort of like sit there and just breathe and just model breathing and then they'll model it. That's that mirror neuron system, as you were saying. But well, if I jump in there and say, oh, you're looking anxious, well, so? <laughs> Uh, I was going to say, so when you're in that position sideways, you don't turn until they've asked you a question or wanting to engage with you. Is that what you'd say? Yeah, like, like you mean it for me to turn around this way? Yeah. I don't, I, yeah, I don't turn around this way until I know that they're feeling safer with me and I can usually tell that by their body language. Like you'll see kids either go like their back as if they're saying you're too close to me so then I back off or... There are some kids that will come up to me like this and I go, right, I got you, I got your attention. Yeah. And it's not being threatening, it's just going, I want to hear more about what you're saying. 
Yeah. So the next thing is how to actually engage the kids in stuff mm. they may not want to do because let's talk about that because a lot of them don't have families that uh, make them go to things that they don't want to go to, which is what we all do as parents, isn't it? We force yeah. our children to do things and, until they enjoy them basically. Yeah. So let's talk about how you get them to do and show up and do things that they won't want to do when you're not a parent. <laughs> I think that um, the first thing is um, asking the kid what they would like to do. And if you tell them that you're doing brain training, they don't get it. So it's really you need to spend a bit of time talking about um, yourself. Like I notice sometimes that I forget things, sometimes I don't pay attention and this is what happens. And just uh, and just inviting them, does that happen to you sometimes or you know, in this situation, does this happen? So it's nothing about what's happened to them. It's about everyday situations to try and normalise that what happens to me happens to you and it's normal. And so, you're, would you say you're able to do this a bit more because of all the work you've been doing to make yourself yeah, stronger yeah. inside too? Exactly. Like I can sense that I, I, I can, um, I'm aware of my, um, strengths and weaknesses cognitively and I can share that with kids and sort of like say my brain freezes when I'm stressed this is what it does and I will usually find something that resonates with them so for example um, um, it could be if I know that a kid's stolen a car for example I sort of like say oh look you know there's sometimes you'd be walking past you know um a, um, a car or maybe even just a a pool or, or something and you just you just do something without even thinking about it does that happen to you then they might share that or might not and this is where the brain health screener test is really good because the brain health screener test is something that um if if I've done it and they've done it then I can really talk about that really intensely with them because you know the exercise that the inhibition one that's the pressed one that it's red and it pressed green that is a classic example where your hand will press the space bar without your control and so I say to kids look what happened then your brain decided that the word press was not safe isn't that weird and it means that your hand touched that without your control what else did your brain do in your life without your control and then they'll come up and say you know something and eventually as time goes on it'll be steal a car or you know whatever so that brain health screener is so good to have to extend that conversation yeah so can you talk a bit about like specific examples of things that kids have actually decided that they want and do and and around the concept of extreme rewards yeah, the extreme rewards is really, really important. So, for example, um, one of the kids that I um, chatted with about and I said, look, doing this brain training stuff and changing your brain and saying no to yourself and stopping yourself from doing things that you, you don't want to do is hard work. When you go and get a job, it's hard work to start off with because it's pretty scary. I said the same with this. So because of that, I would like to, if you're interested, pay you for your time that you're going to do some brain training. Is that something that you're interested in? 
And then I say things like, well, my going rate is $18 an hour. And look, depending on the type of kid, they could say that that is too cheap. I get more for stealing cars, but that's another conversation. But we just go, well, look, this is what it is, but I'm not going to give you money. I'm going, we're going to add that up to something. And let's say we spend an hour, that's $18. If it's half an hour, it's only $9. We just make it work like that and we add it up. And so therefore, let's think of some things that you would like. So the kids start off with, Look, they really are interesting how they start off with lollies. <laughs> they start off with lollies or they start off with um, um, a new shirt or some type of food. It's really interesting how they start from that level. And then eventually I keep pushing them to get up to something higher. And um, it's even when I say pushing, I'm not suggesting because one of the things that is really important in this whole thing is for me to not tell a kid what to do. My job is to help them solve the problems themselves but give them the scaffolding around it. So it would be like if they say, oh, I want a pair of shorts, that sounds interesting. What type of shorts would you like? And then we go on this endeavour. But they really think that you're not going to give them the Ralph Lauren shorts or the super duper basketball shorts. So they're not going to ask for it, but you've got to keep pushing to get them to say that, to actually come out and say, I want the pair of shoes that I stole from another kid. That's where we need to get to. So I just keep pushing um, and rewording my words in a nice, safe way till we get that. And then once they've actually said, I want this, it's like you see a bit of a relief from the kids because they've actually never voiced, had a chance to really voice what they really, really want. And sometimes what they really, really want is not for them. It's actually for someone else. And we know from a lot of research, especially around early childhood development, that when a child receives something that they've earned, and gives that to somebody and gives it to somebody else, they get a much better dopamine, you know, all those yummy, yummy chemicals than they've actually earned for just something that they've got for themselves. So if I can get them to that point where they want to earn something for someone else, it's even better. And is it because um, you've said this to me many times about how they've never really get the opportunity to get anything that they always get secondhand things or... Yeah, yeah, and they've and they've also never. Um, they're just so used to going without. Like the other day, I had a, a young um, boy turn up to one of the programs. Well, young man, I should say, he's seventeen. He 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 had just socks on, and we said, "Where's your shoes?" He goes, "I don't own shoes." I said, "What do you mean you don't own shoes? Oh, I haven't worn shoes for years." And we thought, "Here's a guy who's seventeen and he's been no shoes." So the first thing we did is we went down the road and we bought him a pair of shoes and come back. And, and well, actually, I didn't. One of the staff members did. And he comes back and says, I don't want them. And I, and I knew that that was a mistake because, well, can you think of why? It's because they didn't come from him. It's when we come in and try and solve the problems because we think, oh, this kid needs shoes. But in actual fact, that wasn't important to him. So this is where us adults can sometimes muck it up. We think we're solving the problem of helping, but we're actually 
not because by someone else buying shoes for him was shameful for him. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit now about what you've observed by using these strategies, some of the great examples of getting kids to come back and do things that are hard or some of the lessons you've learned along the way and what you've seen in the capabilities of kids that have come from a lot of trauma and adverse childhood experiences, young people. Yeah. So where, so I see myself as the locus parent. And so if you look at the Furestein research, what we are is like the mediator in the middle and, and we need a mediator for the student and then we need an activity where we come in as the forming the attachment back together. So the Furestein um, stuff is just awesome for that. So the Furestein stuff is about the, the piece of paper and the dots and everything being, being the activity for the mediators means me and the child coming together around an activity. Lego does that. Um, kicking a ball does that. There's all different activities that you can do around that, but it can't be, it has to be an activity that the kids believe that they can master quickly. But we have to come in as a bit of a, I suppose, damsel in distress in that we have to show, particularly for boys, particularly for teenagers, that we can't quite get it, but I need their help to finish it. And when you do that, you're raising their self-esteem back. But the worst thing we can do then is say to them, I'm very proud of you. It's the worst thing we can say to them because as soon as we say, I'm very proud of you, we're creating a relationship back to power. And it basically means that our, our relationship is conditional on you pleasing me. So we don't want to say that. We want to actually say, wow, look at the what you have done. You must be so proud of what you've done to do that. That's fantastic. Where else out there? Where else do you use that skill or where else can you use that skill? So you're trying to get a transference of what they've just done out there somewhere else. So, so can you see how that is, is really, really important in regards to helping kids problem solve when you're not around? Especially kids that don't have any other support systems with them all it's, the time. Exactly. We, we should be focusing on self-determination and, and helping them problem solve themselves. So I say things like, um, you know, how's it going? What's working well? And what would you do differently? Because as soon as you say those two things, you're putting the power back to them. And not many people like to say what they're doing well. We all, we'll all tell you what's wrong with everything. We'll all blame but I want to come back and say, actually, hang on a second, there's something going really well. Even if this is a horrible time for you, there's something actually going well. What is it? And we know from research around gratitude that if you can be grateful for what you can do and what others are doing for you, that changes your neurobiology as well. Absolutely. So, so the target here is to understand that you, you keep looking past behaviour and you're really focusing on helping them understand their brain and focusing on things that will support developing and promoting good things in their brain or their brain health, which is like to talk yeah. about that a little bit. Yeah, and, and what we're trying to do is build that cognition because if we, if we look at those three parts of the brain, a lot of systems and a lot of support is focusing on 
the limbic system and the brainstem. A little bit around the brainstem because the brainstem needs that rhythm, like drumming and, you know, that sort of stuff, that heart coherent stuff. But there's not a lot working on that top part of the brain. And with a lot of our kids in the very vulnerable state, they haven't been involved in cognitive programs such as schools for something like one to two years because they're not going regularly. So that means the cognitive part of their brain is just not kicking in when it needs to be. So that's why brain training is really important. But the brain training needs to be there while the adult is there as the mediator and the locus parent supporting them Yeah, because they cannot do it on their own. So this brings us back to the brain, the brain architecture mm-hmm. and talking about how, you know, you're not born a blank slate really, are you? So these kids also are born with a situation or our young people, I should say, are born with a situation that makes that executive functioning more difficult too but that's got nothing to do with them. Yeah, that's exactly right. And when you teach kids about that, it's empowering. And then when you actually catch them talking from that perspective and say things like, hmm, it sounds like your brain's going a bit nuts at the moment. It sounds like your brain might not be telling you the truth. Let's just think about that. Do you reckon that might be truthful or is your brain just a bit worried about you? When you start doing that, you get these weird looks from kids. But over time, they start thinking about thinking. That's that metacognition kicking in, which is so good, which is so, so good. But the cognitive training is also good, Selena, because, it, it, as you know, it makes us really, really focused our attention and it gets us to stop and think and wait. And if you're really good with the kids on that, then you know that those skill sets needs to be transferred to other parts of their life. Exactly. So that's, They don't do it enough, do they? Well, it's also in us. So this yeah. is what we talk about all the time and it's the missing piece. Um, if we can't stop, think and wait and always jump to something, then the, people are going to copy us too. Yeah, it's that cognitive flexibility part of executive function is that we're not, we're not actually saying no to ourselves and stop and think and look things from different perspectives. We're always going in to solve things quickly. And that's the notion of some of our helping professions' jobs. They've got to react quickly and do things quickly. And, and I get that, but there's still a space there that they can create themselves, but that's something they have to learn and practice. Yeah, and I think this is the really great place to have this conversation right now about this because this is critical so the thing that I'm getting feedback on and hearing a lot about in caretaking professions is that it's always about the other person and and that's wonderful and people are going into the professions because of either their own lived experience or they're wanting to help or make a difference but I guess what I've come to see and and you have as well is that this is a professional development skill it's not personal development So people seem to think this cognitive skill, which is so important in the brain economy, is is an add-on. I think what we're learning really rapidly is that this is a professional development, hard skill, part of your job training kind of skill to have. That's right. And actually stopping, waiting, active listening, all those things we learn in counselling skills 
But I have to say all the counselling skills I've learned, I don't use in what I'm doing now because of what I've learned from you and from other neuroscientists that things are different when we're talking about a dysregulated brain. And the talk therapy just doesn't work until, and, and that's why the cognitive training stuff, the Furystein, the Lego, the balls, all those things matter to try and um, get this part of the brain to settle down so we can get this part working a little bit. So it's really preparing the brain so that people can then engage in all of these other wonderful opportunities that we have in our society for, for other ways of engaging with different things, right? So what you're talking about is preparing the brain for a brain that's been dysregulated over sometimes multiple generations to be able to engage in whether it's counselling or other things, supportive therapies, add-ons um, around that too. Yeah, because if the talk therapy is, is good if I've got cognition, but if I don't have cognition to remember what you've just said in the last five sentences, in other words, my attention wasn't there, my working memory wasn't there, my brain processing speed was a bit slower, then I'm not going to remember what you just said. I'm just going to say yes and smile and just, and just go away and just probably not do anything because nothing clicked because I can't remember to remember. So this goes down to what we talk about a lot is giving instructions in multiple ways because sometimes the brain uh, and, and, you know, I've learned this myself too, that each of us can either hear something but then it goes out the other ear and we could be nodding so we think people have heard what we just said or we need to offer written instructions where people can go away, and but then some people may not be able to read properly. So then we might need to use devices for talking so people yeah. can play it back. So yeah, we have to, in these spaces, we have to offer multiple ways of providing some simple instructions, like how to get to a place on time, et cetera. Yeah. So they're, they're accommodations and compensations, like walking around with a bit of a crutch. And that's why the cognitive training is so important because we need to improve our memory, improve our attention you know, across our lifespan. And if I come back and talk about that 40 to 55-year-old range, particularly for us women who go through perimenopause and menopause, we know that changes our brain. And most people in the helping profession are women and in that age group. So if we, if we don't move our and shift our cognitive skills up, so that when we do get stressed, we know that they're going to down, go down. It's going to affect our relationships with it, with everyone. And this is this has been the, I suppose, the most tricky part for people to understand is that um, stress impacts their brain, and that I think most people know that, but they don't understand that that actually is not just a moment in time. It actually can go on for days, weeks, and years, and um, it's like putting a, um, a toad into uh, uh, some water and slowly boiling it. You know what I mean? You just get used to it. Yeah. And you but make the people are, Yes, but the people around you don't get used to it. They just go, you're different and, and either move on or get crankier with you. And don't give you feedback either because and probably don't want it anyway. Exactly. So if I say the, the biggest thing I sort of like say to people is that when was the last time you said no to yourself and carried through with it? 
So do you want to give an example? Like would that be around an extra donor piece of cake, for example? Yeah, two things. One is the other day when I drove down the Gold Coast, I um, I was um, I knew I had enough petrol to get down to um, Miami, but along the way, what do you reckon my brain was saying? Petrol, petrol, Cheryl, there's a petrol station. Go in there, otherwise you're going to die. You know, this is sort of like catastrophe. My whole brain, and then when I wouldn't do it, I just kept going. And then, but it's running in the background, isn't it? You know, it's always looking out for that petrol station. So I just go, no. Okay, I'm going to do it when I get there. So, and so when I got there and actually filled up with petrol, I felt good because I followed through. So it's the same with, um, say for example, Brett bought home some Tim Tams the other day, and I'm going, okay, I can I can either say no now, or um, or I might want to have all of them. So I just went, you know what? Let's try this no, no thing. I know I'm going to have a Tim Tam, but how long can I wait? How long can I say no to myself? So it's not about setting a goal that I'm going to have that Tim Tam after morning tea. I'm not going to have that Tim Tam after dinner or for dessert, but it's about saying no to myself and how long I can wait. And and so we, we should uh, add here that you are actually, and this is the bit that people seem to miss around um, brain plasticity, is that you're actually training a physical part of your brain when you're doing that. Yes. Right? You're strengthening the inhibition control part of your brain. Yes. So the more you do that, the stronger it gets. And I've seen this inside myself as well And since I started doing it. And because I didn't have any of that in my brain, like, well, I had some of it, but nowhere near what I can do now compared to, say, 2010-ish. So you are actually strengthening a physical, this is the bit that where the words to the brain bit is so important. You're actually strengthening physically the part of the brain that allows you to do that the next time and the next time, more so the delay gets longer, et cetera. Exactly, Selena. And that's why that cognitive training stuff where we're doing stuff on the computer allows me to stop and wait. No, Cheryl, you can't do that yet. You have to wait. And it's these, as you keep saying, it's those micro things that you do often that build up to, I'm not going to steal a car. I'm not going to have that second Tim Tam. Or do, do you know what I mean? Yes, absolutely. That, that has to be, but for teenagers and the kids that we're working with, we have to practice it ourselves and talk to the kids about this is what I do and why I do it. Absolutely. And it's a new way of thinking about it really, isn't it? Yeah, people don't realise the importance of it. Um, people don't, they think that they're doing it, but they're actually probably not because we're on automatic pilot most of our time. Yeah. So I think this one's really, really key, especially working with, and with the young people we're working with. I think it's really, it's the key. It's yeah. the key thing that makes a big difference. And so some of the training strategies you've used, whether you're talking yeah. about Lego, whether you're talking about brainstorm, yeah. where you have them doing yeah. basketball or sport, yeah. is allowing the brain to focus down its attention on one task and build that capability as well. Exactly. So with Furestein, when we're doing the dots, it's about slowly doing it. And even though you want to rush, it's like the tracing, slowly doing it because we just want to keep rushing it. And the other thing is, is that, you know, we're always told at school we've got to finish something. Well, no, we're not going to finish something. 
So it's just micro things often with support that you start becoming aware because we know mindfulness and yoga and all those wonderful things are really, really good at this, but these kids won't do that. But they might eventually. Exactly. Down down the track there. But at the moment, it's us um, doing these things with them talking aloud the metacognition saying this is what I'm thinking this is what I want to do but I'm actually going to not do that because of this reason what's your brain saying to yourself now and uh so this brings us to all the other activities that um, have been built up around these things around whether it's pedals up equine therapy uh, boxing, martial arts, um, anything that can facilitate some kind of repetitive practice that's safe and uh, repetitive, I guess, and, and they can show up to for a period of time allows another kind of form of engagement. Yeah, they're really good. The only issue I've got is that they're not long enough and we know that it's, it, it needs to be at least three months and it needs to be daily because a lot of them are just like two hours once a week for 10 weeks and it's just not going to cut it. But they're very important because they've got the locus parents around them, um, which is are they supporting the kids as they try and problem solve. But, the, but my issue sometimes with those things is that we tell them what to do because we want them to hurry up and do it because we know that they're probably going to crack up. Our job really is to help them figure it out themselves. Absolutely. Um, that brings us to uh, exercise and especially nature and plants. Yes. yes. And actually doing nothing because that's the, that's the secret source in terms of how to really open up neuroplasticity switches and make them feel safe and secure and build yeah something really simple isn't it but it's yeah. got a big impact on positive neurochemicals yeah well just some you know new research out about um being out in nature can help your headaches so that's just like you know some really good research so um we were doing some stuff down the football with, with the kids get your shoes off we're just going to walk around the oval now we're just going to go into the bush and we're just going to sit here and we know that even just sitting for like 30 seconds but often often is the key 30 seconds often it's just like um parents with attachment 30 seconds often is much better than like an hour and then nothing else for the rest of the day um and it's really hard to do with some of these services you know like you've justice and child protection because they don't get an opportunity to see kids doing you know um they don't get to see the kids every time so i know it's very very tricky but those things like pedal up and equine therapy and all them are so good but wouldn't it be good if they just did these other little things at the same time just to add value to what they're doing and i think we talk about this because i think often people think that they're gifts or rewards when they're actually totally helping to get the brain engaged in something that's more positive uh, and i think that bit like everything to do with brain gets lost as personal development or as a gift or as an add-on. And just, yeah. I think changing the language there might be really valuable. Yeah. And, and maybe it's about that, you know, like for example, the, the pedal up, that's a program that I see because I was doing something like that for the boys when I first started this is that it's a problem that needs to be solved, but our job, as the facilitators, 
is not to tell them, but to support them to problem solve it themselves. And if we can just get people to help kids do that, then we're getting that metacognition kicking in. And then the reward then of them being the bike is not about the reward about getting the bike, it's about the reward of they solved a problem themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And then the adult's job then is to be able to turn around and say, look what you've done. You've done that. I didn't solve that problem. You did. That's massive. And, and then, uh, sorry, so, and then the next thing is for that facilitator to go, where else could you do that in your life? Where else can you use that wonderful skill set that you just did then and you did this, this and this? Where else could you use that out there? So that practice to real life is critical, isn't it? And this is, yes. the, this is the complaint about traditional just forms of brain training being non-effective and not transferable to skills outside. And I think that's because the practice, as you build up the strength in the brain, comes through the actual practicing in real life. And, uh, yes, and it takes, to... yes, and it takes us adults to go, you know, when you're out there doing this, I wonder if this, what you did just then, you stopped yourself and what you did, there, I wonder if you can use that there. And just start that conversation because it's not about saying to the kid, I want you to stop doing this because that's coming from you. It's about you've actually just done this to yourself and this is your thinking around that. I wonder if you can use that there and then talk to them about what that would look like and get them to go there in their mind so they can go there in their body. Yeah, because there's a lot of disconnection, isn't there, from, from lots of adversity. Yeah, and if they practice that in their mind, um, Selena, and that, and you're there supporting them going through that in their mind and constantly that mental rehearsal, then that will go out there. Well, this looks, that's like Michael Jordan example. Yes. Where he, yes. people think, why, is, why was he so good? And, he, and people talk about visual analysis of what you're going to do without actually being on the basketball field, for example, court, for example. And it's because you're setting up, some of the circuitry in the brain yes. to perform, even if you're not actually doing the physical practice. Exactly. And that's what we do with cognitive training too. We're setting the circuits up, but what we've got to do is then come in and help them transfer that out there by practising what you've just done there, you need to do it out here. And so this leads us to heading towards uh, the end here, a discussion around how long it takes and the difference in timing and the patience it takes to actually do this, um, it's not something that's done in 10 weeks, is it? It's something, depending on the level of impact in terms of neurologically, it might be 10 weeks, it could be 10 months, it could be two years, for example. I think that patience and understanding the compassion around this, I think that's because we always want to do one thing to a whole lot of people and see an impact. I think that piece about the individuality and the journey is really important. Yeah. We can't look in here and find out what's going on, even though we really want to. We can do an x-ray to see a broken leg and go, okay, a broken leg means this is the same for everyone, but we, that's just not the case here. And I think the other thing too is that the biggest thing is engagement is that how long it takes for things to be engaged. But, you know, the struggle that we've had with some of the kids is that, um, is that one, we don't have a place because you and I both know the environment matters heaps. So we really haven't had a really good place for the kids to come 
regularly to be able to do this in a safe place. So that's one of the things that it really needs to happen. And if I look at some schools and alternative schools, you know, being a teacher, I can say this, that there's some kids that schools can, it's not the right environment for them. And, uh, but at this time, it can be later, but at this time, it's not the right environment. So, and it really is, we really just need to look at this brain. Yeah, and have the patience. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but the patience comes from us understanding ourselves, doesn't it? And knowing how hard it is for us to not being impulsive, to be able to do something even though we don't want to do it, and to think outside of the box and be creative and be cognitively flexible. Um, that strategy thinking comes from us managing our own brains. So in terms of uh, stories that uh, are inspirational in your mind, do you want to share a few of those? Um, I think that um, I've got one adult one that I want to share and I'll talk about some kids, but this, this adult one is probably my biggest one um, in the last six months is um, an Indigenous lady who worked who was um spent two years in um, prison for an assault charge. She has six children. And then she went into um, the Walston Park Mental Institution and she's been in there for six years on remand. And so she came out and did a, a cognitive training program with me two hours um, a week for 10 weeks. Now, this is probably a bit um, out of the reins of being the normal type of thing that I would do. But she would come out with two support people to meet with um, myself and another person and we do um, cognitive training stuff together but the good thing is is that she went when she went back to the park um, she kept going with it so every day that she was in there she kept doing the the exercises that she was supposed to because she was telling everyone that she was changing her brain so she was very excited about it so um and then she came back for another 10 sessions but this time she was only needed one support worker. And then she came back for another 10 sessions. Guess what? She caught the train there by herself. Wow. So they let her out of there and they have not done that for six years. Let her catch a train to this place where we ran the program. So it took like three lots of 10 weeks to actually get that far but that's because she kept talking about it and she kept doing it herself. Um, so, like, I was just amazed amazed at that. So now she's working part-time. Now, who would think that that would happen? Intellectual impairment. She's got, um, um, what's that one, that um, personality disorder. People have written her off. Amazing. So how, Yeah. So how can we do that? With kids, because the other thing I want to say is that um, I think what probably helped with this one too is that the two support workers that came with her at the beginning and the one that happened at the end, I very strongly suggested that they do this as well because they also took her out to other activities on other days. So they kept it going. They kept saying, hey, we need to sit down and do our brain training, and we all did it together. So I just went, this is just a wonderful model of how um, we could have something like this working with our kids if we had the people around them to keep it going. Yeah. Well, there's lots of papers 
just published demonstrating that when you have the team operating together well, then you get activation of different brain regions. Is it, are they different mirror neurons or different altogether? Different, wow. Completely different brain area that you don't get on your own. Wow. So obviously that's what was happening here and it, and it lasted for weeks because those two support workers at the beginning loved it and they kept doing it with her when she wasn't around. That's just amazing. So how can we, how can we do that for our kids? Because that's what's missing here. Yeah, well, I think there's so many contact points and adults surrounding all the kids. Yeah, and that's where you and I started with that at the beginning about saying these contact points. And, you know, I remember at the very beginning we were talking about, you know, the education program. We sort of like thought, oh, this is awesome. When they're not with us, they can be over there doing it. But those sorts of things never came about. So it's like the adults letting down the kids again. So um, it's, a, it's a tricky it's a tricky one, very tricky. Yeah. Anyway, can you think of anything else that you'd like to share um, um I, I just that I missed to ask you about the no I, th I think that um I, I can't probably stress enough and you you and I both know this is that you need to do it yourself and if you don't do it yourself and put yourself in the situation of being vulnerable and changing yourself you're really not going to understand this to help someone else because you're always going to think if that person did it everything will be fine yeah I often think about how I write about this, about we expect children to do what we're not willing to do ourselves, whether it's putting down exactly. our phone, whether it's exercising, sleeping. Um, the list goes yeah. on, I guess, um, which all contribute to this situation, I guess, we find ourselves in. Um, but, yeah. Yeah. That, that and, and, and also. Um, is it? It's just where we are in terms no. of education and knowledge. Yeah, and I think the other thing too is that um, to really to help our young people, we actually need to understand and help ourselves, but we can't think about that being within working hours. So we don't exercise during working hours. We, we probably need to think about that to take care of our brain health and change our brain health probably needs to happen outside of working hours. Because well. I know that you and I do that. Yes, yes, that's right. You and I do that. We we invest in our brain health and keeping our brains healthy outside of our working day because we know that, um, you know, we need to keep this sharp. And for, for me, I need to make sure that um, I'm keeping it healthy and strong so I can be regulated around kids and, and help people that need to be done. So that's the self-care stuff that you can't do during working hours. Oh, I think I, I want to finish too about COVID because COVID mm. really put a, an impact around this too. It, it has amplified and opened a window to make some of these situations worse for everybody, even if we're coming in from a pretty safe country in some sense, but all the uncertainty and not being able to plan, as you mentioned, stress and things like that, they impact executive function. So that's had a, that's had a double whammy effect across the sector too, hasn't it? Absolutely, because not only has that affected us, but it's also affected the children because of mirror neurons. And also the shutdowns and lockdowns, yep. not being able to yep. get programs and all sorts yep. of things. 
That's right. It's just disrupted everything. And it's hard to stop and restart. Do you know what I mean? Like we know that some kids just can't do this online stuff. And, I mean, we know from research that this is not attachment. We know we need to be with the person in front. So we're, we're trying to find ways to go accommodations and compensations, but really they're not sustainable. Great. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom. Um, okay, hope it helps. <laughs> well, I think it's also really like the more I think about it, the more critical, like you know how the experts uh, take 10,000 hours of practice. Yes. And you've had way more than 10,000 hours of practice with young people, with people with disability, disadvantage, trauma, in and out of youth detention across the whole lifespan. So, I mean, you probably have 50,000 hours at least. Well, it's probably, I think it's about nine years now doing this. So you're probably about right. Yeah. But it did, yeah, yeah, yeah. But this is something that you practice. I think this is really critical. You can't just implement straight away without practicing. Like it's the transfer of these new skills into actually doing it too. And it may not work all the time, right? And And so you have to keep those failures will help you learn. So I think that's another key element here is to understand that it's a learning curve that you're on. It's a skill that you're developing. It's not something that happens overnight. Yeah, and that, um, like I, I sort of like say to people, pick it, pick something and do it at least 10 times because there's a bell curve within that, that you'll go along really, really, really well and then all of a sudden you'll want to give up. So what do you do to say, what do you do and what do you say to yourself? More importantly, what do you say to yourself to push yourself over the edge to get to the other side? Because that usually is around that five, six, seven, eight mark. So if you're going to do something, and so like a lot of times people say, oh, I'll use this strategy on a kid. And we'll go, hang on a second, you need to use it on yourself first because you need to know where the bump is and what to get yourself through it so that you can help and, and support a child to get through it. That's yeah. what we don't do. Yeah, and that's what we're learning how to do. Yeah, yeah, but it does come back to us and, and sharing and caring um, with kids, which is something that, you know, the system is a bit, you know, not doesn't like to do, doesn't like, you know, you're taught not to share much about yourself, but you need to share a little bit to... Um, to, to get that attachment, particularly these kids, so that you can help them do things together. I remember when we've done stuff before, it's always the adult that needs to work with the child to do it together. So we're working together rather than I'm sitting beside you and supervising you. So on that note, I think we will end it. Okay. Maybe we'll do it again sometime.